TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink. The TNT Shop has it all at TNTradio.live. Examining the issues. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. Breaking news. The Washington Post has declared why you should have a pet bunny or rabbit instead of a dog or cat. Quote, according to the Washington Post, rabbits have a minimal paw print. Well, cats and dogs have an oversized carbon footprint. In fact, having a rabbit is so eco-friendly, the Washington Post says, quote, it's like having a vegan cat, unquote. You know, I woke up the other day, I think it was 3.40 in the morning, and I was thinking, I had to get a vegan cat. I just can't think of anything. You know, if you're going to buy carbon offsets, if you're going to go out and buy $100,000 Tesla Plus, why not get a vegan cat? If you really care about the earth, I think this is on everyone's minds. But here's the good news. You don't have to get a vegan cat and punish it with a vegan diet. You can just get a rabbit. They're naturally vegan. It's incredible. I had this all wrong. And once I realized that, after reading the Washington Post, I just slept like a baby. Uh, you know, Which, by the way, you're not allowed to have babies because that is a, bad for the earth as well, uh, population. Okay, not making this up. This is the Washington Post. Now, remember, the Washington Post has a climate solutions reporter. And that reporter wrote about how hair sweeping from the barbershop can save the earth because you don't want 20, 22 or 21 tons of hair ending up in a landfill. Now the Washington Post is hitting us with a change up. You know, it's always good, you know, left, left, right. Um, the Washington Post climate advice columnist, actual title. I'm not making that up. The Washington Post has on staff a resident, quote, climate advice columnist. And I even included the screenshot at Climate Depot. This is Michael J. Corrin, the climate advice columnist for the Washington Times. What would you like to be? I'd like to be a climate solutions reporter. Oh, I'm going to be a climate advice columnist. Ooh, we have bright, promising future. And believe me, probably well paid, great benefits. They're in the thick of things. They've succeeded. You know, this is the ruling class. They got the ruling class blessing. Okay. Headline of the paper actually says, why should you consider bunnies as your next, next pet? And here's what the Washington Post says. Cats and dogs have an outsized carbon footprint, mostly because of their carnivorous diet. Oh, they eat meat. This is an anti-meat article disguised as what pet you should get. If the pet food industry, which mainly feeds dogs and cats, were a country, it would rank the 60th highest greenhouse gas emitter equivalent to the Philippines. So next time you think about the Philippines, Imelda Marcos, all those shoes she used to collect back in the 80s, just think, wow, the Philippines, pet food has the same carbon footprint as the nation of the Philippines. These are little useful facts. In fact, if you wake up in the middle of the night, just think of these things. Believe me, you'll fall right back asleep. Rabbits, by contrast, have a minimal paw print. They eat small amounts of hay and otherwise discarded vegetables. Their waste can be used as fertilizer in the gardens. It's like vegetable matter. In contrast, most cat and dog kibble is 50% animal protein or more, accounting for 1.5% of global agricultural emissions, according to a 2020 study in the Global Environmental Change. And that's a peer-reviewed study. Don't ever question the science in a peer-reviewed study. You hear me? So that's the Washington Post. Uh, you know, again, 
If you can't get a vegan cat, get a rabbit. Dogs are completely out. I don't know if there's such thing as a vegan dog or if that's good or bad, but this is what the Washington Post believes and says. Uh, and it's just nuts. On the same token, same vein, new paper, Cass Sunstein. I think he's a former Obama administration official. Long, weird history with him. Anyway, new paper. Regulators should value non-human animals. And they're seeking in this paper to estimate the number of dog years saved by a regulation. And I know I'm not making that up. This is by Cass Sunstein, Harvard Law School, Harvard University, Harvard School of Kennedy Government. And it's actually published in a peer-reviewed journal. And the title is Regulators Should Value Non-Human Animals. And it's just there, February 17th, 2024 study. Here's an excerpt. If a regulation prevents dogs, horses, or cats from being killed or hurt, the benefits should be specified and quantified in the federal rulemaking. So any environmental regulation now has to get a bean counter to come in and estimate the savings of animal life or the cost to animal life. And I believe one of the examples was using the dog life here. Let's continue. Outside of federal rulemaking, an academic study finds the value of a statistical dog life is $10,000. If the goal is to come up with some number, it should be to advance to use that one, perhaps as a plausible lower bound. But there's a natural objection. If the life of a dog is one one-thousandth that of a person, is that the value of a dog's life? At a minimum, agencies should attempt to quantify benefits and costs to non-human animals, even if they cannot monetize them. With the help of contingent valuation studies, they should also attempt to monetize those harms. Do you see what's happening here? Every action of development, of prosperity, of economic growth is now going to be valued on dog life impact of every species available. This goes beyond the Endangered Species Act. Very similar to what I talked about about three weeks ago on this show, the whole movement to declare personhood of lakes, streams, rivers, rocks, trees, bodies of water. The idea is they have equal protection under the law. You can be sued by a tree to prevent you from cutting it down. The tree can't actually sue you, but it's advocates, people advocating on their behalf, humans advocating on behalf of this. And that's what we're getting at here. This is truly getting to be bonkers, bonkers. Now, just to show you that not everything's crazy in the world of climate change, the WHO and more European countries, the World Health Organization, are mainstreaming climate change in their health policies. The WHO is calling for making climate a health issue. We've talked about this. This is just more solid evidence. The World Health Organization's Jamie Farrar calls for making climate a health issue, need to act now and anticipate future by consequently investing in science long-term, bringing down barriers in equity, access, and within science. Now that equity, that brings up nothing short of uh, in identity politics, which is what I wanted to declare next. This is not a made up story. Breaking news, the World Health Organization declares, quote, the climate crisis is not gender neutral. Imagine waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, gee, is climate change gender neutral? Do you ever do that? Does that ever happen to you? I hope not. The World Meteorological Organization, the serious august science body, claims women need gender-sensitive information and services, unquote. 
I don't even know if I want to read. It reminds me of the UN conference I attended. I interviewed a woman who said that men heat up the globe and women pay the price. So that men who hate the planet and the women who love them. It's just, there's, I don't know. I mean, this is just nuts. Uh, but I, I, I do have some good news. And this is from Politico. Biden's sweeping green vision crashes into reality. Now, Politico is a mainstream corporate publication here in the United States. Slowing EV sales, anxious union workers are complicating, quote, ambitious climate policies. And there you go. Uh, Joe Biden is now green policy, crashing and burning. We're seeing what's happening in net zero. I gave you that good news the other day. So, uh, you know, and of course, Joe Biden isn't really all there to deal with this crashing and burning as he enters this. I'm going to show you clip one. Uh, this is what the special counsel, federal counsel in the United States, noted Biden had diminished mental capacity. And this is a little support I thought you might want to see our, the president of the United States in action. Roll clip one. I, uh, um, anyway, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. I was just thinking, uh, uh, anyway. But I, I just, look, I mean, Putin's kleptocracy, uh, yeah. It was in February, February uh, January, after we elected. The late January, early February. He said, uh, it's not, we need, uh, not just, uh, well, I won't go into it. Here's what drives the driver in the states that are affected. Here's what the, you can do, the drivers. Uh, I, uh, for two reasons. One, This is the man whose green agenda is crashing and burning. This is the man who is the Democrat, will be the Democrat nominee, barring unforeseen health issues, taking on what appears to be Donald Trump. I don't know what else to say. Uh, wait, I'm getting a Biden moment. I'm channeling Biden. Uh, this is, um, well, yeah. Anyway, that's what Joe Biden, you know, as a president, and that's not really trying very hard. That video goes on for like six, seven minutes, I believe, of just clip after clip, day after day, week after week, month after month. Uh, and the special counsel really nailed that when they said, you know, this is a man of diminished capacity. And they wouldn't, didn't even want to take him to a jury until some issue they were investigating because the jury would be sympathetic to this old man with memory issues. So, you know, and it, this has happened before. I mean, Ronald Reagan... There's reports the last year or year, two years of his office, he was very far gone mentally. And, you know, where Nancy Reagan, you could see videos of her whispering in his ear. It's not unheard of. It's when you get to this advanced age and I think the pressure and the stress and the fact that no one wants to pull the plug, not on his life, but on this, you know, presidential powers, we're clearly there uh, in America here. Anyway, uh, yesterday I showed you some of the updates on Julian Assange, the journalist, uh, which... This is a great clip. This is Tucker Carlson explaining why the Biden administration is trying to kill journalist Julian Assange for the simple crime of embarrassing the Central Intelligence Agency. So let's play clip two. It'll give you a little historical and uh, 
policy context for what's going on with Julian Assange. Julian Assange has been locked away in one place or another for more than a decade. Julian Assange is so despised by elements within the permanent U.S. government that at one point, CIA Director Mike Pompeo discussed murdering him in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he was seeking asylum. Mike Pompeo has never been charged for that, which is a crime. Unelected bureaucrats can't just murder people they don't like. Um, and he probably never will be charged with a crime. Virtually the entire ruling class in Washington is opposed to Julian Assange. And that's the reason that he has sat for years now in Belmarsh Prison in London. Keep in mind, Julian Assange has not been charged with a crime in Great Britain, and yet he's being held there. And this continues, as we mentioned before, stay tuned to TNT for all the latest in the Julian Assange developments happening in London. Uh, and we will keep you up to date on that. Okay. I came across this. We've talked on this show about the Great Reset. My book is about that. We've talked about ESG, environment, social governance, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've talked about central bank digital currency. Well, this is an explanation uh, of, uh, I believe, a, uh, I believe it's a college professor. It could even be a high school teacher explaining the dangers uh, of what's happening with our banking system currently and how they're not only centralizing uh, you have the massive debt, the inflation, the corporate government collusion. You have the debanking going on. And of course, with central bank digital currency, as the UK Telegraph has said, the Bank of England let the cat out of the bag. The government will only allow you to spend money on what it deems sensible. So that's the that's the rate we're going. This is a explanation uh, by a teacher. Clip three. Come back and I'll give you a little more information on it. 10000 into the bank. They take my 10000 and they go get 100000 They borrow it from the Fed window. They get 10 times the amount of our deposits that we put into the bank. They then get 10 times the amount. They then take that 10 times the amount and they put it into treasury bonds or something else that's going to give them a yield of 7% or 6%. While they pay us what? 0. 0.00000 nothing percent. Right. And then what happens? We get hip to it and say, hey, Mr. Silicon Valley Bank, can I have my money back? Oh, we don't have it right now. I want my money back. I don't have it. Everybody, I want my money back. Give us our money back. Hold on. We got to go sell the treasury bonds that we invested in that now are upside down because the rates are through the roof. And I don't have your money. So what has to happen to their Ponzi scheme that I would have went to jail if I did that? They get bailed out. Mr. Biden comes up and says, oh, I'm going to print more money. I wonder why he's going to print more money to devalue your dollar even more. Very well explained. Let's you know um, exactly how this banking system with corporate government collusion, control of billionaires and consolidation, centralization of power is basically screwing you and I. Uh, there was actually a great film on this about the 2008 Wall Street collapse called The Big Short with Steve Carell and others and just sort of showed you just how the federal regulators failed, how the banking system covered up, lied, cheated, and then how they get bailed out, no matter what wrong they do, where the average person would never get bailed out of anything. So that's going to be a big theme of this show continuing forward, too, is, is what's happening in banking, what's happening in public health, uh, of course, what's happening in climate, what's happening in foreign policy. This last one deals with what I just mentioned, public health. Uh, I don't like to brag. All right. Of course I do. Now, well, this goes back to March 13th, 2020. And I want you to really watch this. This is, let me repeat the date, 
It was me on Ezra Levant's TV show on the Rebel News. March 13th was the broadcast date. I believe I taped this March 11th or 12th. Um, it was pre-taped. I don't think it was. It could have been the 13th that I taped it. It's possible. But this is before two weeks. I believe I had to look the exact time. I believe it was a couple days before two weeks to flatten the curve. It was before the COVID emergency declaration that Donald Trump did. Certainly before we had sports cancellations and the lockdowns begin. I was warning against COVID lockdowns before they happened. So this, I want to address this idea that, well, well, we didn't have enough knowledge. And, oh, poor Trump, he didn't know any better. And who knew? We None of us knew. We all just assumed we could trust the government. We could trust Anthony Fauci. No, no, no. Decades earlier, Anthony Fauci showed his true stripe with the AIDS epidemic. Anthony Fauci showed his true stripe. We had um, Michael Fomento has done incredible work exposing him long before RFK's book. I saw what the CDC was up to with the vaping regulations, how they were just all about power and shutting down an entire, trying to regulate and control a vaping industry with outright lies and anti-science nonsense about this vaping illness, which was from illegal black market vapes. So the CDC tries to ban all vaping and recommend against it. Real cigarette smoking goes up and then... Um, Forcing, and then the people that do vape are forced to get black market vapes off the, which is the whole problem, part of the problem that caused it. But of course, the CDC didn't care because the more crisis, the more fear, terror, fear, fear and terror they can instill, the more regulatory control they can get over it. And I was about, I had actually started my own Twitter handle. I was about to go on and defend this war against vaping against the CDC. And then COVID came along. So I was then, I was like pissed and angry looking at this whole thing like the cdc we're now listening to them i saw firsthand the year before going right into that what lies they were willing to do i mean it was just blatant stuff so i actually i'd like to have a guest on that. there's a couple guests that can actually detail what public health has done to vaping but this is clip four this is me on ezra levant again before lockdowns before all the COVID insanity actually began warning against it there were a few of us folks out there who were warning against this, screaming at Donald Trump, disappointed that Tucker Carlson flew down to Florida and told Donald Trump to take this virus seriously. Tucker later apologized. Um, you know, there's been a lot of people who were on the wrong side of this, from uh, libertarians to major figures. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you, this is when it mattered, folks. This is clip four. Watch me talking about it. I'm also linking it here to the climate, how the climate activists love what they're seeing with COVID. Uh, so let's play clip four, March 13th, 2020, broadcast on Rebel TV, me with Ezra Levant, warning basically Donald Trump and the world against COVID lockdowns before they happen. They are. And again, it reduces population. It lowers carbon footprint. It reduces travel. And here's the key thing. It increases government intrusion. I mean, imagine this. Quarantines, shutting down of industries, keeping kids home from school, shutting an entire um, you know, sporting events down. They're looking at a complete, you know, essentially a, a dictatorial style response to this in many governments. Now, I happen to believe this is, again, if you, you know, there's a lot of serious people looking at this and people like Michael Fomento actually has a great column in the New York Post on the coronavirus. But I think as Roosevelt said and uh, at the beginning of World War II for FDR, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Mm -hmm. So the greatest threat we face is the government and media 
counter reaction to this virus. But it's really a chilling effect. And it should be eye opener to anyone willing to investigate what the climate activists, what the media, what the U.N. officials have to say about this. And they are just drooling at the prospect of this government expansion, the government power that's going to happen because of coronavirus fears. And they want to apply that. They want those powers for climate and they don't they want the public to get used to this way of living. They want the public to get used to the travel restrictions, to get used to quarantine, to get to used to, you know, the UK power chief said, get used to electricity only when it's available. They want people to get used to living the life they want only when it's government approved and okayed by your health official, et cetera. So this is the vision. Living under a quarantined viral virus hysteria is how the climate activists envision the future living under a climate emergency hysteria. So it's a real eye opener. If you like life under coronavirus fears and government uh, action, then you'll love life under the climate agenda. And then, uh, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so on March 13, 2020. Um, Incredible. And then, of course, I was contacted by Bloomberg News and I urged the Trump administration not to go down this route. Of course, no one listened. I even talked to some uh, lower level Trump administration officials and their answer was, well, you know, he's going to be blamed for all these deaths if we don't go along with this. Well, he was blamed anyway. He was blamed because he wasn't strict enough. And in my book, The Great Reset, I go back and revisit this whole time area era of time. And I think Ann Coulter had one of the best explanations. No governor or mayor or president should sign off on these lockdowns because once locked down, you'll never be able to open open up because they'll say you're going to kill people and anyone who dies will be, you know, the media will hype it. That's why you never lock down in the first place. You cannot give in to the narrative. You cannot give it. Remember, this was all based on the World Health Organization going to China saying, if you want to know how to stop a virus, copy China, copy China, copy China. And of course, we did. The entire Western world copied China. And the result is a is a tyranny that there's been no prevention of ever happening again the only prevention of it re being a repeat there's no real laws at the federal level local few states have some good things that have happened like pennsylvania and florida but the issue now is our resistance we have to not comply we have to defy we have to resist the great reset needs to be the great resist so well we don't want to go back and say i told you so although i will say that i told you so uh that's not constructive we need to just go forward and say never again. And we've learned our lesson. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but um, I told you so. All right. Sorry about that. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Chris Talgo, Executive Director of the Heartland Institute. And we're going to talk about election uh, results and who really won the 2020 election and whether there's any election irregularities or election issues we need to resolve or whether this was the greatest fair election and, and Joe Biden got more votes for president than anyone in the history of the United States. He's that popular. The Joe Biden I just showed you a little while ago. Anyway, we'll be right back. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. TNT's Darren Denslow. A cemetery here in the UK could be extended by 7,000 graves to cope with a rise in deaths and burials during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Why we need to suddenly extend that grave now? I don't. The graveyard now? I don't know. Luton Borough Council. So plans were being finalised to expand the Vale Cemetery on Greenbelt land next to the town's existing cemetery in Stopsey. A survey in 2008 found the existing cemetery would run out of space by 2025. In fact, I could carry on going through this article and guess what? It doesn't mention COVID again. It only mentions COVID in the headline and the very first line of this story, which sends my alarm bells off uh, 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 ringing because uh, I suspect it has nothing to do with COVID, but everything to do with an increase in deaths and excess deaths since COVID. Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14, and I watched her struggle. But MDA helped her get the best treatments and care, and they also help kids like my buddy Ethan. My name is Ethan, and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. Without CO2, the world stops breathing. CO2 sustains all life on Earth. Government, the WEF, and the elite believe humans are the carbon they really want to be rid of. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT with Mark Moreno. All right, well, joining us now is Christopher Talgo, the Editorial Director and Socialism Research Fellow. Uh, he's a managing editor for StoppingSocialism.com, a well, very needed uh, resource and publication in today's world of 2024. Welcome to the program, Chris. And thanks for being here, Mark. All right, let's, uh, you know, let's talk about elections. Joe Biden, according to the narrative, got more votes than any other president in U.S. history in 2020 and beat Donald Trump in key swing states, uh, and the election was fair, there was no problems, and anyone who says otherwise is an election denier who's guilty of misinformation, disinformation, and therefore should be censored. How much of, how much of that official narrative is wrong? And let's start there. You know, what, what exactly happened with the 2020 election, and was it part of a long trend, or was it some kind of big rapid acceleration that a lot of changes occurred uh, you know, because of COVID that happened, they never could have got away with this, say, 2016, 2012. So lay out the case. What happened in our election in 2020? Who won the election, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, in your view? Well, I think it was much more the latter. Uh, so what happened in 2020 uh, has never happened before. Uh, under the guise of the pandemic, we had uh, governors, we had secretaries of state go and change the election rules, which is unconstitutional because only state legislatures can do that. So they did that under the guise of the pandemic. And then what happened was they sent out mail-in ballots across the board to almost every point on their election roll. If they didn't send them a ballot, they sent them a request for a ballot, which is basically the same thing. So what we had happened in 2020 
was uh, 65 million people vote by mail. That was more than double the amount of people who voted by mail in 2016. But like you were alluding to earlier, this has been part of a, a trend. In 1992, for example, 91% of Americans voted in person on election day. By 2020, that had decreased to 30%. 70% of people voted well before election day, because now you can vote six weeks before election day in several states, or they voted by mail. So what we're, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that states uh, solve this problem in anticipation of the 2024 elections upcoming. But what also happened in 2020 was you had this flooding of the zone with mail-in ballots. States also went and intentionally did away with a lot of the common sense guardrails, such as uh, signature verification or you know presenting a photo ID and all that kind of stuff. So they made it, it so that they made they made it so much easier to cheat. Now, what we found in our poll, we uh, we conducted a poll with Rasmussen Reports in uh, December of 2023. We asked 1,085 voters, "Did you vote in 2020 election? Yes or no? And then did you vote by mail? Yes or no?" Among those who voted by mail. We found that 28.2%, more than one in four, admitted to committing at least one type of election fraud. So that could have been something like, well, you know, I lived, I didn't live in the state in which, you know, I'm a permanent resident, but I voted anyways. I filled out a ballot for someone else. I signed someone else's ballot. Even 8% to a <laughs> admitted, which just blows my mind, 8% admitted that they received a bribe in return for their vote. So what we did was we then said, wow, this is, you know, pretty stunning stuff. 28% of, you know, mail-in voters, you know, cast a ballot illegally. Wonder if that would have impacted the results of the 2020 election. So what we did was we took the state uh, data that was available to us uh, for the mail-in votes. And in some states, like Arizona, for example, it was 90% of people voted by mail, which again is just mind-boggling to me. And we, uh, then we, you know, we extrapolated the data from the Rasmussen survey and what we tried to do was we tried to determine if you were to eliminate the mail-in ballots that were cast fraudulently, whether that was 28% of them all the way down to 1% of them, what would have happened in the 2020 election? Under almost every single scenario that we did, that we you know performed, Donald Trump would have won the 2020 election. Because in those six swing states, those six crucial swing states, Joe Biden won each of them by less than 20,000 votes. Wow. So if you look historically, you'll, the argument will be, well, we've always had mail-in votes, military members. What's wrong with a mail-in vote? I mean, yeah, don't you trust uh, people in the country to vote correctly? Or what, what's the problem with a mail-in vote? Tell us the, why that's such a big deal overall. Okay. So the, the, the biggest problem with mail-in voting is that they send the ballots or they send the absentee requests for a ballot based on outdated, notoriously inaccurate voter rolls. So as we saw in the 2020 election, states do not clean their voter rolls on an annual basis or even semi-annual basis, even every 10 years or so. So whoever's on the voting roll, whether they're dead, whether they've moved, whether they're no longer eligible to vote, whatever the circumstances, they're getting either a ballot sent to that uh, address or they're getting a request for a ballot. Now, that's a big, major, major, major problem because in several states, there are tens of thousands of people who should not be on that voter roll anymore. We'll never know what happened to those tens of millions of ballots that were sent to those people across the country and what happened to them in 2020, which means that they could have, you know, whoever lived at that uh, address that the person no longer lives at, 
they could have just filled out their ballot, thrown it in the mail, and there you go. There's a you know vote cast. So it's it's very difficult to prove after the fact. But you know what we're really interested in doing is making sure that it does not happen again in 2024. All right. Well, let's. So a mail-in ballot. Now, obviously, each state election law is different because here in the United States, you know, it's not like a federal standard that all the states have to comply with, right? They can pretty much do whatever they want. Is there is there any limit on that? Is Supreme Court ruled? Are there any federal guidelines? Like, can a state just say, you know, we're going to have people click a mouse and vote, uh, or they can mm -hmm. send a text on their phone? Is there any limit that the federal government wouldn't accept for voting for federal office? Well, what, what what happened in 2020 in particular is that the Supreme Court of the United States and the state Supreme Courts, uh, they they refused to to rule on these because they were under the assumption that, hey, it's a pandemic. Emergency declarations were in place. As you know, almost every state governor declared some sort of uh, you know emergency in light of the pandemic. And in light of those emergency uh, declarations, they were allowed to to go above and beyond uh, what they ordinarily would be able to do. However, it still doesn't matter because this Constitution specifically designates that only state legislatures can uh, conduct or make rules on how elections should be conducted. So, you know, to answer your question, yeah, we do have a smorgasbord across the nation of different, uh, you know, voting rules by, you know, each each state. Some are much more lax than others. You know, California, they love ballot, you know, uh, harvesting. They love ballot stuffing. They send everyone, every single person on their rolls a ballot versus other states like Georgia and uh, Florida, for example, where they don't do that anymore. So yeah, there's definitely a spectrum there. But what happened in 2020 is even those states that you would have thought, whether it was Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, that would have had you know decent uh, met, uh, you know methods in place, all of them were eliminated. So it was just like anything goes in 2020. Well, then the question is when these states, and again, the state laws are all different, how do they verify a mail-in ballot? Is there a policy procedure they're failing to do, or is just the very idea unverifiable? Like if you know, if they're getting all these ballots, isn't there someone to go through and say, okay, no, this person died, this person left the state, they're no longer eligible? Is there what sort especially in the six states, what sort of voter verification for the mail-in ballots existed or was supposed to exist? So uh, one of the one of the best. Uh, things that they can do is do a uh, signature verification. However, they did away with that. Uh, like you said, you know, th there are a bunch of other guardrails in place, whether it's, you know, making sure that the person is eligible to vote after the fact or whatever, but those were all just done away with willy nilly. So they made it, they made it basically an invitation to fill out illegal mail-in ballots, you know, and there's also a, you know, bunch of uh, anecdotal stories uh, in the months leading up where ballots were found like just bags of ballots found in ditches, just all over the place. I live in a you know pretty big apartment complex in the Chicagoland area. And in 2020, in the months, in the weeks leading up to the election, because Illinois is one of those states that did send out a ballot to every single person on their voter rolls, there were several ballots just sitting around in our in our mail room on the counter because no one knew, hey, this person doesn't live here. And and you know, that happened on a massive level across the country. Well, so was there, there was a, a, I don't know the year, but it was maybe 2005 or something. Wasn't there a presidential commission with James Baker and I want to say Jimmy Carter who advised against mail-in balloting in the first place? Uh, do you have any information on that commission? I think it was maybe 15 years before, about 2005 or so. 
You are spot on. 2005, former President uh, Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker uh, produced a report, which we cite uh, throughout our policy study, which said that there's ample evidence to prove that voting voting by mail is much more prone to fraud. There are so many reasons why. And they said, you know, we should be, we should try to minimize this as much as possible. Obviously, there are exceptions, you know, people who are disabled, like you said, people who are serving overseas, people who might be living abroad. But, you know, what's happened since 2005 in particular is the notion that you have to have an excuse to vote by mail has been just completely done away with. And it's all about convenience, convenience, convenience. That's how they want to make it, you know, appear to be. But as we know, yes, the convenience also means that it's much more uh, easy to commit voter fraud. Now, at the time, uh, you know, and I want to get into the COVID restrictions probably after the break, but at the time, there was a lot of focus on the voting machines. And I think, you know, initially, you know, in terms of like, I guess, from the Trump campaign, all we heard about was the voting machines, the irregularities, the software, the lack of security. Uh, and did that all t- not pan out as anything to be concerned about? Or was it overblown and the real issue was mail-in? Or is the mail-in related somehow to the uh, electronic voting machines? How do you, what's your stand on that and your investigation look into that at all? We didn't really focus on the uh, the voting machines, but you know what what our research showed is that uh, paper ballots are by far and away the best possible way to make sure that the vote is accurate. You know those voting machines. You know they they there's been lots of stories of them uh, double counting votes and you know changing votes and all that kind of stuff. Once again, I can't you know confirm that or not. But what what you know what we are recommending is that everyone votes using a paper ballot because those have a you know those you can count after the fact and you can uh, confirm and verify uh, the, the the voting machines. You know that's that's something that you cannot you know trust. Well, we saw, you know, the the old expression is that voting, counting votes is more of an art than a science, right? So you go back to Florida uh, 2000 with Bush and you had the hanging chads and they were going through with all the voter and the people they claimed accidentally voted for Pat Buchanan, which would have been a margin Mm -hmm. in some count. Anyway, so the the question really is then when you have these mail-in ballots, these six states, let's focus on those. Couple questions. Are the ballots still around? Number one. Number two, is it possible that even today someone could gather up all of these ballots uh, and actually try to trace them or find out? Or are the ballots actually blank? In other words, are there, is there a name associated to the mail-in ballots when they get them? Uh, or is it just a, a official ballot with an anonymous vote on it and on these six states in particular? And is there a way ever to truly audit that and recount the election with someone going through and saying this person's dead, this person doesn't live here, this person's not eligible, this person doesn't exist? Is there any hope for that? Or are these mail-in ballots thrown away like 24 hours after election day or incinerated or something? So it's a combination of those things. Some of the okay. states have have a ballot with with no one's name on it, and they discard the envelope immediately after the fact. So once the envelope's gone, you don't know who the who the person was. Oh, uh, yeah. Arizona, for example, they perform multiple audits uh, audits after the twenty twenty election, and you know uh, reports came out that uh, ballots were missing, that they were burned, that they were misplaced. So there's a blood, there's a lot of stuff like that happening after the fact, and the and you know another big problem that I think the people of America understood was happening in real time before the very eyes was the lack of transparency with the voting process. Uh, whether it was what happened in uh, Atlanta with, you know, this pipe beat burst and then they just quit counting in the middle of the night or some of the stuff in Detroit where they put, you know, 
paper over the window so you couldn't see what was going on there. There was a lot of funny business and a lot of weird stuff that was going on. I stayed up that night until, you know, the wee hours of the morning. Uh, you know, at one point it looked like it was a complete lock that Donald Trump was going to win re-election. And then all of a sudden we got to stop counting and then we see trucks coming with more ballots and all this just crazy stuff. And then, you know, a couple of days later they say, well, after all now, you know, counting all these mail-in ballots that just magically appeared sometimes out of thin air, it just so happens that that uh, Joe Biden won by the most minuscule of amounts in those crucial swing states. Well, the other thing you'll hear is, well, every court that's looked at these the claims like you're making that you know that there's a lot of irregularities said there that, that there was nothing there and they were dismissed and that no judges no court in any state has ever agreed with this in the supreme court and they use that as a way of saying there's a no there there can you tell us the story behind what were all these court cases why didn't any of them get full hearings why didn't anything go that way why didn't the supreme court look at these irregularities what's the i know there's a lot of federalism as well there and also jurisdiction other jurisdictional issues but explain because you'll almost invariably if you're having a conversation with a biden supporter the first thing out of their mouth is no court agrees with anything you've said every court dismissed these but there's nothing there so how do you respond to that Okay, so there's 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 two main points that I want to make on this. So first of all, as I you know said earlier, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to prove some of these after the fact because whether the the ballot was discarded, whether the um, the envelope was discarded, it's literally impossible to prove. The other thing that uh, a lot of the courts I think were reluctant to make somewhat controversial rulings on this because they didn't want to be the arbiters of the election. You know, you talked about 2000 and I remember 2000. I remember that the Supreme Court did make that call in Florida and there was a lot of, you know, people in you know in the country that were really angry about that. No, the Supreme Court should not, you know, declare who wins and doesn't win. So I think, you know, the Roberts Court said, "You know what? We want to stay away from this." But I don't think that that was the best decision. It was a short-term political decision, but what it what it did was it emboldened a lot of these states to say, "Well, we got away with it in 2020. We're going to get away with it again and again and again." So well, the other courts, you know, I think like the local uh, state courts, how come there was never, were they just jurisdictional issues or how were the judges, you know, like Democrat operatives, they just didn't want to see the cases. Was that the same thing on the lower courts as well? Same thing in the lower courts. And a lot of this was, you know, they it was done under the emergency declaration. So the emergency declaration just gave these secretaries of state and these governors wide ranging powers to do things that they ordinarily could not do. And, the you know, the state Supreme Court, even the lower courts in a lot of the states, they, you know, they just went along with that. They went along with that narrative, even though. As you, I'm sure you remember, there were many instances in the summer of love of 2020 in which people were said, you can go protest, that's fine. So it's like, you know, if it's a social justice cause, you can go and do anything you want. But by November, you know, well after the pandemic, you know, really had like hit hard, they were telling us, if you go and vote in person, you might die, which is just patently absurd. But it just goes to show that they were pushing as hard as they could to make mail-in voting you know, the new normal. And to some degree, they are succeeding. And that's why we're trying to make sure that the American people understand that this mail-in voting thing, which they're trying to say is like, this is like, you know, the the, the new way of voting. No, this is not the new way of voting. Well, all right, well, that's why I'd like to talk to you about some of these emergency powers that they used to make this happen. We have to take a break. We're talking to Christopher Talgo, editorial director for Socialism Research.
and socialism research fellow at the Heartland Institute, who has a new study out uh, uh, looking at the 2020 election. And basically, you're saying that Donald Trump actually won based on your analysis. Am I correct in saying that? Absolutely, you're correct in saying that. Okay, and so so we'll be right back to continue this discussion. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Yesterday, I let you see one of Joe Biden's worst moments when he falsely accused the special counsel of bringing up his son's death during their interviews in October. Well, the RNC has put together a montage of more of Joe Biden's worst moments. Watch. I, uh, um, anyway, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. I was just thinking, uh, uh, anyway. I, I just, look, I mean, Want more? Putin's kleptocracy. Uh, yeah. It was in February, February no, January, after we been elected. The late January, early, early February. He said, uh, it's not, we lead, uh, not just, uh, well, I won't go into it. And there's plenty more where that came from, folks. Again, I ask the question, how could this man be president of the United States? 25th Amendment now. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments, we turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world provide the news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. Too many journalists are paying with their lives. They face exponential risks and they've already paid a heavy toll. Death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I'm naked in the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Tout que je m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. Fearless, informative, and unfettered. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. 
Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT with uh, Mark Morano. We're continuing our discussion with Christopher Talgo, Editorial Director of, of and Socialism Research Fellow, Managing Editor of StoppingSocialism.com from the, of the Heartland Institute. All right, Christopher, or Chris, um, the pandemic, 2020, it's almost, I always say, like what happened with COVID was the same way gun control advocates wait for a school shooting or the way biosecurity people who want to take away our freedom and have a surveillance state wait for a terrorism attack. There's certain things waiting and waiting in the wings for something bad to happen so they can exploit the politics. Do you think the uh, the write in ballot advocates were waiting for something like COVID to have an excuse to impose this? And what exactly happened in COVID? How did this how did they how did they get to the point where there's a huge jump in mail-in ballots in 2020? You, you alluded to it. It was all about fear and saying you would die. But just how bad was it and how how ready were the um, proponents of write-in ballots, which they'd probably wanted for decades, to now move in and, and make it happen? Yeah. So like I said earlier, this this trend of uh, trying to increase uh, mail-in voting has been happening basically since 2000 and it's been you know slowly but surely climbing every single election but water uh 2020 was a watershed moment because we had more than double the previous amount in uh 2016 and like you said this was all based on fear-mongering this was all based on control this was all based on states who knew that you know going and voting in person was not going to be a health hazard literally trying to you know instigate you know this just panic among the the people to say you can't go and vote you can't go and do anything you must stay at home vote by mail and you know just trust us that is not the way that elections you know should be run uh you know it, it's also interesting to note that you know europe and most of the other oecd countries they've done away with mail-in voting for decades they know how how fraught with fraud it is so why is the united states moving the opposite direction of all those you know, other countries i mean there's so many um you know pitfalls with mail-in uh voting so many and these states i think knowingly you know said well it allows us to flood the zone with you know ballots and once those ballots are out there it's just all about getting them back in and then it's just a numbers game and they think that they have a better ground game the democrats the left than the republicans do the democrats have a much they do have a much better ground game they have a much better uh you know way of you know getting voters to the polls they have a much better way of you know making sure that those uh mail-in ballots are getting you know put into the drop boxes ballot harvesting is one of their you know their best art forms the gop the republicans the you know right just they don't embrace it you know as much and one of the things that's you know happening now is there's this uh this this debate saying well should we should we you know everyone just embrace mail-in voting you know and i'm saying no 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 and we're saying no because it's going to be it's then it's just going to be whoever can cheat you know the most will win the election that's not how elections are supposed to be run yeah wow uh if you look uh, at what happened with carrie lake in arizona when she lost that race she was crying foul was that write-in ballots? Was that voting machines? Was that what was the issue there? And what are you, what is your just? I know you didn't do a, an in-depth analysis on Arizona race, but what exactly do you think may have happened there? Yeah, so actually, the the, the state of Arizona was, I think, one of the most you know in, in, incredible stories of 2020. In Arizona, more than 90 percent, 90 percent of people voted by mail. 
less than one in 10 went and actually voted in person. That's that's either voting, you know, on election day or in the early voting period. So I think that Carrie Lake has a very good argument to say, wait a second, all these, you know, people were uh, sent, uh, you know, mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, just, you know, it was, it was such a mess in Arizona. It took them days and days and days to get the count right. There've been multiple recounts, there've been multiple audits. It just keep, the numbers keep coming back differently. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about the Dominion voting machines and other voting machines, you know, playing with the numbers there. But just across the board, Arizona was a complete dumpster fire in terms of the 2020 election. All right, and then what about Georgia, the runoff election? I can't even remember. Um, I, I can't remember what year. If it was a 2020, but the uh, or 2021, the runoff election. Yeah. And I remember that the uh, Governor Kemp's like top aide or someone in his office was an executive on Diebold. There was a lot of questions about that. I remember people saying, like, don't even vote in that special election. And of course, the Democrat won. But what was going on in Georgia during those runoff elections with the voter integrity? Yeah, so uh, the the Georgia case is another great uh, you know example of you know something going horribly wrong, but then them actually fixing it. So, like you yes. said, there was the, the there was there was the double runoff. It was um, Warnock and uh, Ossoff uh, both were were running because in in Georgia you have to have you know the fifty percent to to win the election. So they did the runoff, and yes, there was a lot of you know uh, I think uh, dismay among you know GOP supporters by saying you know what. We just we just don't trust elections anymore and all that you know stuff. But what happened after the uh, mid the uh, runoff election is what really you know caught our attention. So Georgia and Florida really went out of their way to say we need to clean up our elections. We need to make sure that you know that people who are voting by mail actually have an excuse to vote by mail. We you know want to make sure that the voter rolls are getting cleaned up, and we want we want to make sure that uh, you know ballot harvesting is not happening and just all that you know stuff. What happened as i'm sure you remember was the media went you know just completely crazy saying this is all about voter suppression this is all about jim crow this is all about you know trying to deny uh minorities the right to vote but interestingly in the 2022 midterms in both florida and georgia the data showed that minority voters actually participated at a higher rate than they did in 2020. so it's just complete and utter nonsense this this yeah. notion that is you know being brought out there to say that this is all about trying to suppress the vote. No, it's actually, actually, it's really about trying to make sure that people are not disenfranchised because every single time someone votes illegally, that's disenfranchising someone's, you know, rightful vote. All right, well, we couldn't have a complete conversation without at least having you address what the left says is the real problem, like in 2016, Russian interference in elections. And we had many election deniers of 2016 on the Democrat side, CNN, MSNBC, how much of a factor was Russian interference in 2016? I'm sorry to keep straight. Zero. <laughs> yeah. zero, 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 zero. You know, they keep playing the Russia card just like they've been playing the race card again and again and again. They're doing it now. They're doing it again. And it's just preposterous at this point. It's just ludicrous for, for them to gaslight the American people to this degree and think that we don't know better than that. I, I think that the American people are really going to make their voice heard in 2024. As long as the election is on the up and up, I'm I'm confident that uh, we're going to have a you know landslide, uh, 1980 style, you know, just you know, really? huge victory. I am. Yep. Well, okay. Why would you be? Let's. We only have about a minute and a half left or so. Tell us what reforms are needed and what reform. First of all, what's happened that gives you that confidence, 
And how do they, like the six states, let's focus on this. what's changed now going into 2024 that's different? Are there, is there a severe restriction on these mail-in ballots? What would make you that confident? I'm sort of surprised you're that confident because I still feel, I most of the people I know are just kind of like, ah, oh, geez, I wish we could win an honest election. I mean, wish we could have an honest election and win, but people sort of resigned that they can't. Why are you so confident in what has been done and what can be done on the state levels? Well, my my first, I'm very confident because there, there's going to be no pandemic, as far as we can tell. You know, oh, obviously right. there could be something that that comes yeah, up. You know, <laughs> yeah. But but as as of right now, like their whole you know pandemic excuse is out the window. So you know, the, the, the American people are you know well aware that all that crazy stuff that happened in 2020, no way are they going to you know be able to repeat that again. Some of those states have passed you know some election reforms. That's great. Uh, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, but I am confident that, you know, the state of the economy, immigration and all the crime is going to produce a huge Donald Trump victory in 2024. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's Christopher Talgo, editorial director, uh, StopSocialism.com from the Heartland Institute. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you for watching. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. See you next time.